welcome everyone to the Clifford Chance podcast, uh, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. Um, this is part of a Clifford Chance series of podcasts called Construction Law Conversations, which are all available on our website. Um, Clifford Chance, uh, if you don't already know, we are a leading international law firm and we re regularly represent our clients in the construction sector on making and defending delay claims. My name is Mohsen Ali. I am a arbitration lawyer based in Tokyo, uh, and today I'm joined by Spencer Flay, a partner in our Perth office with over two decades of experience in dealing with construction disputes, including disputes arising from project delays. Thank you for joining us, Spencer. Um, I'm also joined by Peter Harris, uh, a senior arbitration lawyer from our Tokyo office who has vast experience on working on construction disputes. Uh, Pete and I regularly work together uh, on delay disputes um, and we often work closely with delay experts on those disputes um, and thank you for joining us Pete. Um, so in this podcast today uh, Spencer, Peter and myself we're, we're going to discuss the difference between what is commonly commonly uh, referred to as prospective analysis uh, versus retrospective analysis uh, and why this different uh, this difference is significant in the context of delay claims. We'll be sharing some of our experience um, of working with experts and dealing with delayed disputes uh, in court and international arbitration proceedings. So uh, to kick off, uh, I might start with you, Spencer. Um, now, while while some of our listeners will be very familiar with um, a lot of these terms, um, perhaps you could just give me uh, a sort of layman's understanding of what a prospective de delay analysis is. What does that really mean? OK, thanks, Moss. Um, perspective literally means forward-looking. So when a delay event occurs or is known that it is about to occur, for example, a typhoon or a cyclone, depending on where you are in the world, most contracts will require contractors to give notice in order to get an extension of time and or compensation for the delay event. Now, notice periods can be quite short, for example, within seven days of the event occurring or within seven days of becoming aware of the event likely to occur. So contracts generally require contractors to estimate the impact of the delay, how long it will extend the critical path of the works, or in other words, what will be the delay to the date for practical completion. And because the delay event is imminent or ongoing at the time of giving notice and making the EOT claim, the claim needs to be supported by some form of analysis, showing what impact the delay is going to have on the activities in the approved construction program, and ultimately what will be the effect on the date for practical completion. Um, for example, one type of delay might be a, de a dredging permit has not been issued by the expected date, and so it's going to cause a 30-day delay to the date for practical completion. Understood. Understood. Thank you. That's that's a very clear explanation. Um, but just in terms of the delay analysis itself, that analysis part, um, presumably it's not as simple as saying that a 30-day delay um, to take your example, um, for the permit issuance is going to cause the project to go on for another, say, 30 days. That's absolutely right. And that's where the analysis comes in. So generally, you need a planner to model out what they think will be the impact of the relevant delay event, taking into account mitigation measures and the status of the works. So, for example, if other works can be brought forward or other work streams can still progress, the net effect of the delay event may make less of a difference overall. So it might not be 30 days. It may be 25, it may be 20, depending mm -hmm. on the mitigation measures you put in place. 
But it should always be remembered that a perspective analysis is by definition only a forecast. It is mm. what is the best estimate at that point in time. Understood. So as you said earlier, absolutely a, a forward looking uh, analysis. Um, so with that in mind, maybe I will ask Pete uh, to give his um, to give us his views on what a retrospective analysis is. Pete, can you give us an overview of that? I'll certainly do my best, Moss. Uh, hello, everyone. It's great to be here on this Clifford Chance podcast. Retrospective analysis. So it's really the opposite of prospective. So if prospective analysis is forward looking, retrospective analysis is a backward looking approach. So what does that mean? Well, it means that retrospective analysis looks at how the delay event actually impacted the work. So in, in Spencer's example, it's it's how did that dredging permit delay actually affect the contractor's progress? And that is going to be based on as-built records, documents showing what mm -hmm. actually happened at the time. So it looks backwards. And, and when might we use a retrospective analysis? Well, you can only use it after the delay has occurred and the event has impacted the progress, but it could be immediately after that. You could do an analysis uh, and make a claim based on that. Or it could be something that happens much later, because for reasons Spencer explained, you might start off with a prospective analysis. You may have to do that. But then if you get into legal proceedings later, it may make more sense to have somebody go back and look at what actually happened and what the impact actually was. Mm -hmm. Understood. So so if a, if a retrospective analysis explains what the actual delay is, uh, as opposed to a prospective analysis, which is the forward forecast, the forward looking side of things, as, Pence, as Spencer pointed out. Um, why would uh, the contracting parties choose perspective uh, over retrospective? So a very good question. Um, the reason is that disputes about extensions of time and any associated compensation have the uh, potential to significantly impact a project. So on complex projects, there is often more than one potential delay event happening at the same time or in other words, concurrently. Now, ideally, the potential impact of those delays should be taken into account by updates to the approved construction program. A perspective analysis provides a basis to update that program, but also that provides the principal with a basis to award an extension of time to the contractor without waiting to ascertain the actual impact of the delay, which may take years to eventuate. Therefore, the award of an extension of time during the course of the contract albeit on the forecast basis provided by a prospective analysis, prevents time-related disputes being regulated, uh, relegated sorry, to the end of the contract. In other words, delay issues are dealt with in a timely way, giving clarity to the parties and hopefully reducing the number of disputes at the end of the project. And that's why many contracts um, stipulate a prospective analysis. I see, I see. That's very helpful indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Spencer. Um, so, so now that we understand why a contract may require a contractor to make an extension of time claim using a prospective analysis, uh, i.e. before the full impact of the delay uh, event has been ascertained, um, what happens if an extension of time is not awarded, say because the principal thinks that the contractor is responsible, the contractor itself is responsible for the delay, um, and by the time that the dispute is actually determined, the actual impact of the delay has already been ascertained. Does that mean that the 
we, we can't use the perspective analysis um, and the, the retrospective the retrospective analysis should be used instead. Not necessarily. So it's all things uh, construction related. Um, it will depend on the contract. Mm -hmm. Sure. If the contract says the EOT claim has to be made on a prospective basis, then depending on the particular wording of the contract, you could say that a prospective analysis is the type of analysis the parties have agreed has to be used. So there's an argument for saying that prospective analysis must be used, or at least that is the appropriate form of analysis because that's how the parties have agreed EOT claims should be made and assessed. And so by that same logic, if an arbitrational tribunal or a court is really being asked to consider whether an extension of time should have been granted, i.e. should the completion date have been extended at the time the EOT claim was notified, the tribunal or court should arguably be looking at what the contractor should have assessed at the time it made the claim without the benefit of hindsight. But as I've said, it very much depends on the terms of the contract and each case is different. Of course, of course. Um, but, but say in the context of a delay event, which has already occurred, um, we know what the impact was. How, how likely is it that a court or a tribunal will accept a prospective analysis when there is, as I say, already evidence available of, of what actually happened? Pete, maybe I'll ask you to chip in on that one. Thanks, Moss. Well, firstly, as Spencer said, it does very much depend on what the contract says in each particular case. But if the contract's silent, it does, i.e. the contract doesn't say you have to use a prospective analysis or you have to use a retrospective analysis, I think there is a growing census, consensus in the common law world that some form of retrospective analysis should be used, although it does depend. But it, it, it is logical in some ways because the court or tribunal is charged with the question of usually giving an extension of time or allocating damages and so the court's got to look at well what caused the delay event and if it's got evidence as to what caused the delay event that wasn't available at the time there's a logical basis for saying well that's better evidence than what somebody thought was the cause and impact of the delay event before it actually happened. So there is, as I say, this growing consensus to rely on a retrospective analysis where there are documents and records available. Tribunal or court can do is, many of you would have heard of the Society of Construction Laws Delay and Disruption Protocol. Uh, it's not a document that um, everybody endorses and it types of analysis available. And what the protocol says about extension of time claims is that wherein EOT application is assessed after completion of the works or significantly after the effect of an employer risk event, then the prospective analysis may no longer be appropriate. And I think that's getting at the point that I was talking about, which is once you've got the evidence available, then why are you using a prospective analysis? But it does say mm may no longer be appropriate. So this means there may be particular situations or contracts where there are good reasons why a prospective analysis should be considered, at least in relation to extension of time claims. Um, that's right. Um, and Australian courts have expressed competing views on the utility of the um, SLL protocol. Um, there are a number of cases such as the uh, civil mining and construction versus Wigan Island Coal and Alstom in Yokogawa where the court has readily adopted recommendations from the protocol. 
But equally, in contrast, in um, some other recent cases, in, um, most particularly white constructions, the court found that, and I quote, for the purposes of any particular case, the fact that a method appears in the protocol does not give it any standing. And the fact that a method, which is otherwise logical or rational, but does not appear in the protocol, does, does not deny its standing. So this means that for extension of time claims, it is more important for delay analysis to be logical and rational than performed according to a particular methodology. And I think it's fair to I say, see. Pete, in our experience, that is very much a common sense approach that the courts will take. Um, analyses where the, whatever the methodology adopted, it is logical and has a sound basis. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. No, that sounds certainly reasonable. Um, uh, so if, if I may just move things along slightly, something that goes hand in hand with extension of time claims. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about prolongation costs. Um, so by the term extension of time, I understand that to basically mean a claim for an extension to the completion date as set out in the contract, which has the effect of then shielding the contractor from liquidated damages. Um, i.e. corresponding to the number of days of extension of time which are actually granted. Now, to get that extension of time, the contractor has to satisfy the criteria in the contract, which, like Spencer was saying earlier, may require a prospective analysis to support that claim. But my question is, what if the contractor is also seeking prolongation costs, i.e. those additional costs for having had to stay on the project uh, longer? Um, costs associated with you know, extra staffing costs, mobilisation costs, equipment costs, etc. Will that, um, seeking that claim in parallel, does that change the methodology? It certainly does, potentially. Again, everything turns on the terms of the contract. And really, for our clients, this is where the rubber hits the road, because this is where the money is. So, where it gets more difficult is where the contractor is claiming prolongation costs after the delay event has occurred. So no, these costs are usually claimed as delay damages, so the normal principles of damages apply. Now, some contracts avoid this difficulty by recording an agreement between the parties on a daily prolongation cost um, that the contractor can claim, or at least claim up to a cap. Much the same way as a principal's entitlement to delay damages is nearly always expressed as liquidated damages, um, at a particular rate, also up to an agreed cap. However, where there is no such agreement, a contractor claiming prolongation costs has to establish that the additional costs were caused by the relevant event and that the costs were actually incurred. Otherwise, a contractor could be overcompensated. So let's take an example. Contractor makes an extension of time claim and uses a prospective analysis to show that there will be 100 days of delay due to an event for which the employer is responsible. The contractor then says it incurred additional costs at the rate of $100,000 per day. Therefore, the claim is worth $10 million. Because the prospective analysis is based on an estimate of what the delay would be, to get its $10 million according to common law principles, the contractor is likely to have to submit, an addition, likely to have to submit additional evidence to prove it suffered $10 million in loss. So to meet the usual test for damages, a prospective analysis by itself is likely to be insufficient to convince a court or tribunal of that entitlement. By contrast, if the contractor can show that it was actually required to stay on the project for the additional 100 days, so long as it can prove the burn rate, in our example, $100,000 a day, 
the retrospective analysis of 100 days, if established, may be sufficient to establish the $10 million loss. It is one thing to avoid liability for liquidated damages by using an extension of time claim based on a prospective method, but further thoughts need to be given to what method is appropriate if you want to discharge the burden of proof required for a delay damages claim. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about delay analysis, um, and we've got a good idea of what's meant by prospective analyses um, as opposed to retrospective analyses. Um, these still seem like pretty broad categories. Um, there, there, there seems to be a, a lot more nuance to the way these types of analysis are uh, categorized. Um, Pete, maybe I could ask for your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's that's right, Moss. There's a lot of different types of prospective and retrospective delay analysis methodologies, critical path analysis methodologies. And this is really the territory of delay experts who really that is their skill in forensic planning to use sophisticated project planning software in many cases to come up with the most appropriate analysis uh, or the most useful analysis that they can find. And there are lots and lots of different types. I think there's a really a growing consensus for the as planned as built windows analysis when it's available but again the contract could cut across that or there could be reasons why that's inappropriate the scl protocol that we mentioned earlier includes a good summary of the most common types of methodology and it's quite good because it does include some of the strengths and weaknesses of those and explains which ones might actually suit a contractor or which ones might be a bit unfair to a contractor in some circumstances so it's a, it's a good starting point but as, as lawyers, unless the contract's very clear, we tend to take guidance from the independent delay experts as to what methodology they think is appropriate or most effective in the circumstances. And then we need to stress test that against what we think is required from a legal perspective and take into account any particular preferences that the client has given what they were doing on site or what they might have even agreed with the principal. I don't know, Spencer, if you've got any further comment on that point. Well, I agree with that entirely, Pete. Um, we work with different delay experts all the time. And when we choose them, we have to think carefully about which expert and which methodology is best in each case. So often it's important to try more than one method of analysis um, to provide a sense check on the preferred method methodology because it may raise legitimate questions if the answers reached are miles apart. Um, it may also be helpful to try and agree what methodologies should be used with the other side if possible. I know in my jurisdiction in Western Australia, the new practice directions effectively require the experts to agree on their methodology or the difference in their methodology before they are even briefed. Um, or not so much briefed, but before they asked to give a report. Um, otherwise, the delay experts may go in totally different directions, creates inefficiency in the proceedings, um, and I'm sure everyone's heard the term ships passing in the night before. Um, <laughs> but the guiding principle is really common sense. If, if you choose a delay analysis or two different delay methodologies and one says you delayed by 100 days and the other one says you delayed by 300 days, well, you really need to have a close look at that and see which is logically and, and um, more likely. Ships passing in the night, indeed, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so you've both mentioned a few times that the type of methodology um, to be used may, may be determined on, on the basis of what the contract says. Um, 
And is there anything the parties can do to at the drafting stage um, of the contract to specifically address that point? Um, for example, should they specify the type of methodology actually to be used there in the contract? Well, that's a great question, Moss, and certainly a question that most of our clients ask at one point or another. Ultimately, I think it's helpful to have as much certainty as possible about how delay analysis is going to be conducted. But this has to be ba balanced against leaving it open for a party to use whichever delay analysis they think is most appropriate. So we've discussed today at length how different situations and different types of claim, including the point in time in which the claims are made, may affect the, the appropriateness of the analysis and whether that should be a prospective or retrospective analysis. So that's a long way of saying, I don't think there is one, there's a one size fit all answer to your question, but certainly we discuss these issues with our clients and it can be helpful to agree some basic parameters, particularly if some flexibility is maintained in the type of analyses, which is um, mandated by the contract. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I would just add that if, if there is nothing in the contract, it, it's never too late to try and seek some agreement around how de delay analysis is to be conducted when you've actually got an issue. So if an EOT claim is, is contested, often the contracts these days allow for a dispute resolution board, and that's one of the things that a dispute resolution board uh, panel could usefully do, which is to get the parties to agree at least on the methodology they're going to take for their respective claims or for dealing with delay. And then, as Spencer said, once you do get into proceedings, if you've got experts, good experts who are independent should be able to get together and, and at least agree things like what's what's the baseline program that they're going to use, what's the as-built data that they're going to use, and they may be able to agree also on methodology. But I think the, the, the guiding point is really to try and get them to talk early on in the proceedings, understand which methodology you want to use, why you want to use it. It's okay to have strategic considerations about particular methodology. You just want to make sure that whatever methodology you use is defensible. Um, so I think it's something that is worth spending some time on early on when you know you've got a delay dispute. And so that's why we would usually encourage our clients to, to raise the point with us and we might even get an expert involved early on. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. That That's that's very helpful. Um, now, I think that's probably all we have time to discuss today um but my, my my thanks again to pete and, and spencer for their um really interesting insight on on um this particular area of uh, of delay analysis um you know if i were to summarize the main takeaways from today's short podcast i suppose and feel free to jump in pete or, or spencer if there's anything to add but i'd say firstly both types of analysis perspective and retrospective I'd say perspective is um, an analysis which is forward-looking um, seeks to forecast the impact of a delay before the delay has occurred or at least before the full effects of the relevant events are known um, and then retrospective analysis is the backwards-looking methodology uh, and is based on records which demonstrate the actual impact um, of the delay event once once that impact is known um, which of those methods is appropriate? Teams will um, uh, depend on the wording of the contract, um, the nature and status of the project, the availability of the data, um, the types of claims being made. Um, and it may also be influenced by the law of the jurisdiction where the claims are uh, are, are being brought. Um, 
Uh, and again, as we touched on earlier, there are multiple different types of delay analysis, and the analysis is usually performed by technical experts who specialize uh, in that field. Um, and they work together with the legal team to identify what methodology is most appropriate. Um, and now, if you have any questions about this topic or want to find out more, uh, please get in touch with us by uh, email um, to either Spencer, Pete or myself. Um, and I think that's that's probably it, unless uh, Spencer or Pete have any other comments. I think you've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Uh, if you'd like to hear more content like this, please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn. That's it from, from me. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you.